Welcome back, everybody, to Plain Politics. Chad Hartman here from WCCO and from the Star Tribune editorial board. John Rash and Lori Sturdevant. And, Lori, we just were saying before we started, uh, we never run out of items. We just never, whether it's locally or nationally. Let's start locally with the governor. The governor speaking on Tuesday to the Minnesota Business Partnership Dinner. And part of what he said, I admit I have a hard time dealing with people that don't conduct themselves to those standards, talking about public trust and decency and and the ethics, the way he views politicians should act. Last week, I was deeply angered when I learned certain Republican legislative leaders had purposefully misled Minnesotans. Is that true? Do you believe the Kurt Doubt, Senate Majority Leader Gazelka, did they purposefully mislead Minnesotans? Well, who can judge these motives of these uh, folks? But the storyline did change in regard to the funding for the legislature in the face of the line item veto that the governor cast at the end of May, at the end of the legislative session. The story was that we are imminently going to be out of money, staff will have to be laid off, paychecks will stop, and we are at the verge of a branch of government being rendered dysfunctional. Well, it turns out that there are enough funds to keep things operating until the session resumes on the the now scheduled date of 20th of February. That involves doing some uh, creative shifting of Mm -hmm. funds that wouldn't normally happen, but it looks as though that's within the legislature's purview and that that should be able to go forward. So the story changed. Now, was that intentionally deceptive or was that people coming to understand their budgets a little differently after after being presented with new information? Who's to say? But isn't, Lori, let me stay with you and then bring John in, in in a second here. Isn't still the major issue, does the governor have the power to have this sway over the legislature? Isn't that still the thrust of the argument? Well, yes, it is. And that is why this court case is still relevant and is still open. You know, there were headlines uh, a few weeks back that the governor's uh, veto power had been upheld in this case. Well, that is, I think, a misreading of the order that was handed down. In part, one of the arguments that was made against the governor's veto, that part, the governor's authority was upheld. But the the court went on to say it is not acceptable to tear down one branch of government. If that is indeed the result, we the, the court will have something to say about that. They set up a process involving some mediation. That fell apart last week. The court, we, we, I'm, I'm waiting to hear from the court again, yeah. quite frankly. I hope right. Minnesotans hear from the court sooner than later. We, I still think we need some clarity about what is the governor's authority in this realm. That was the tough part, John. If, if the average Minnesotan read that, I think they came away confused. Are we closer to a resolution or not? Because did anybody really think mediation was going to work, even if the mediator is very accomplished? That lasted about four hours. You're absolutely right. They had about a mediation minute where they said the right things, said that they looked forward to the honest approach of the mediator. But you're right, it chatted, fell apart quite quickly. And I think you and Lori are also correct in assessing the fact that the involvement of the judicial branch is key here. But I would even take it one step further. The comments that you began with when you were asking Lori the question were done at the business partnership meeting um, last night on Tuesday night. And, you know, that is a meeting that anyone who's attended know it's about pulling the community together. It's about the business community and governmental leaders and how Minnesota is supposed to present a different model. Here we have an example where this is happening 
while Amazon is looking for a second headquarter in a transformative corporate shift that Wall Street Journal had a really, or New York Times had a really interesting article yesterday about to what lengths beyond, you know, uh, in terms of tax breaks and tax credits, but just organizing their communities, all the suitors to Amazon's second headquarters are doing. And if they look over to Minneapolis and St. Paul, which should be a region they should clearly consider, they see that the state government fundamentally isn't functioning on a political level, given this these challenges between the three branches of government here. And I think that the damage could be very significant unless they're able to come to some kind of an agreement. All right, John, let's let's branch that out to a race that took place in Alabama Tuesday when they're looking to replace Jeff Sessions, who now is the attorney general. And the president had came out and in the now infamous 90-minute speech where he brought up the NFL, which we'll get to, had endorsed one candidate, but former uh, Alabama uh, Supreme Court Judge Roy Moore wins. Roy Moore is your quintessential anti-establishment candidate. John, this is a man who's been kicked off the Supreme Court two separate times on defiance of the, where the commandments statute should be on same-sex marriage. But this is the ultimate anti-establishment any one. What, what does this say about the president's power, and what does this say about mainstream Republicans right now? president perhaps now feels how the Republican Party felt when he himself ran against yeah. it, because in some ways, Roy Moore was the Donald Trump of the race, even though right. President Trump endorsed Luther Strange, who was the sitting senator from that state. It also says a lot in terms of what is often defined as conservative in its current incarnation in some of these races is far less about ideology and much more about attitude. And the demeanor that Roy Moore brought to the bench and then to his race for United States Senate was much more confrontational, much more in your face, and much more in a style of subverting norms that candidate Donald Trump successfully parlayed into President Donald Trump here, and we're seeing the same dynamic. It also sent shockwaves, I'm sure, through Senate Republicans, many of them who represent much more of a type of senator that Luther Strange was mm -hmm. and are probably now wondering if they're going to see a challenge from their right, which might make them less amenable to do necessary things like move forward on a continuing resolution for the budget or to bring the badly needed fixes to the Affordable Care Act that are going to have to happen, especially with the repeated attempts and failures to repeal and replace Obamacare. So I think that we're in for even more of a rough time in Washington if, as expected, Roy Moore beats the Democrat and moves on to the United States Senate. Lori, does this also tell us about Steve Bannon? You know, when Steve Bannon oh, yes. left the White House, was forced out of the White House, some people said, well, what would happen? to him? Well, no. Steve Bannon picked one candidate, the president picked the other. Bannon's candidate won, and he said, I'm not done. Right. No. And he said this warning to McConnell and Carl Rove and others. We're going to keep going. Bob Corker, who absolutely is a conservative senator, but he's viewed as a mainstream senator the day before he said he's done. No, Steve Bannon was certainly one of the winners last night. Whether or not Alabama voters were following his lead, his credibility has now been enhanced in the party. You know, we editorial writers like to think about sort of systemic things in, in politics and government. 
And what I've been thinking about since this Alabama election result last night is something I've been thinking about frequently in the last couple of years, how our system is empowering the extremes in both parties. We mm-hmm. see it in the Bernie Sanders movement in, on, the, on the left, and we see it in, in this result in Alabama again most recently last night. The system itself, I think, builds in rewards for zealotry on, on the extremes, and we don't have a system that offers much reward in the middle. Bob Corker may be leaving the Senate in part because of not experiencing much reward in the middle. I think we should be thinking, in Minnesota particularly, about what kind of systemic changes we can offer to, to build more strength in the middle. We had a, a pretty centrist state during those years, for example, when we had a nonpartisan legislature. We don't have that anymore. Should we be looking at changes like that, perhaps? Does the public want that, though? I mean, I, I'm someone who views myself as a centrist who's voted for both sides, but I look now and the energy is on the left and right. It that's leaves right. me shaking my head. I really don't agree with either side. That's where a lot of the population is. That's where a lot of the energy is well, continues I, to go. When I speak to Minnesota audiences, Chad, I still hear from people who would like to to operate in the middle, who, yeah. who, who, who miss that and would like to see uh, avenues for doing so, avenues that look as effective as what the system that we have now is appearing to be effective on the left and right. Thinking that through is a big job for yeah. governing Minnesota and governing this country in the next few years. We can't really govern the country very well, I don't think, as polarized as we are right now. I'd quickly add that that it points directly to the popularity of Senator Klobuchar, who has tried to you know, make a, a point of working with the other side, sometimes smaller issues, sometimes more significant issues. And she comes into the conversation particularly this week because she was part of the health care debate on CNN and staked out the centrist position in terms of, you know, there is a, a different way than repeal and replace and then and and not um, Medicare for all that Senator Sanders and the Senator Warren wing of the Democratic Party is pushing here, and that's to have a bipartisan fix of the Affordable Care Act. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays with her colleagues. Perhaps some will be scared away because of the Roy Moore experience in Alabama, or perhaps some will say, we have to go solve real problems for people, and that's going to be our solution to stay in office. Well, let me stay with that, and then both you guys chime in. John, you first. The Republicans have tried this fairly relentlessly over the first eight months, and they've come up short a number of times. They certainly, once we get past the fiscal budget deadline here of the 30th, they can come up with ways to try it again. Are they going to jump right back in the pool? Are they going to pause? They're talking taxes today, major tax reform. Are they going to take a little bit of a break before they go back at it again? They're going to take not just a little bit, but I think a big break right now, go toward tax reform and tax cutting more than anything, which itself will be extraordinarily difficult to do, especially with the deficit hawks who will find out who really fits in that category. Now, when they are going to vote on something, look at what is being proposed and wonder where the revenue is going to come from when we're already in such an incredibly difficult debt position here. And I think that regarding health care, what they ran into is the fundamentals, is that whether one loves it or loathes it, and most people polls indicate in between, the Affordable Care Act was designed to address a real problem. Mm-hmm. And so when they concentrated on repealing and placing it, voters concentrated on that and said, what is this going to mean to me and my life? And you had a significant swath of them, particularly in many red states, who said, this is going to make my life more difficult. And thus, you started to see 
senators peel off on the Republican side. Democrats, of course, this being President Obama's signature law, wanted to defend it at this point. But, you know, until what they never really truly got to was a replace that resonated with the American public where they said, okay, this is a good, acceptable way. Instead, what people heard were shifting and often alarming numbers of those who would remain uninsured once these once a repeal and replace bill did indeed pass. You agree, Lori? Well, they're they're going to take a break here for a little bit? Well, I agree. Just because the rules are now going to change as they get out of the budget reconciliation opportunity, yep. that opportunity to pass something with 51 votes, that makes it that the 60-vote threshold is an impossible one to reach. And, you know, with each passing day, each passing month and year, the, the notion gets more firmly planted that uh, health care is something that it belongs to every that yeah. everyone should have. The longer it's the law of the land, the harder it is to take something away. That's right. right? Absolutely true. And, and we do have a continuing effort, kind of been kind of quiet, too quiet in my opinion, but a continuing effort involving Senator Lamar Alexander, Senator uh, a Republican, yep. uh, uh, Senator Patty Murray, a Democrat, to find some kind of uh, remedies to the existing law modest changes that would make a difference to make that existing law work better for people. I'm still hopeful that something like that could happen. There are a lot of governors, even Republican governors, who agree with some of those ideas. Let's transition here to the president and the battle with the NFL. Again, this started with uh, his comments and his comments to his base on Friday about Really, this goes back to Colin Kaepernick, okay, mm-hmm. and Kaepernick believing that African-Americans, people of color, are not treated the same, taking a knee. It's interesting, Kaepernick has been quiet this week. I'm sure there are many media outlets mm-hmm. who would love to hear from him. But among the, the many stories I read that I thought were the most insightful about the president's decision about this, and he hasn't stopped tweeting about it even today, is that he wanted to make sure his base knows, I'm still with you. Yeah, I work with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, and there's some other things, but I'm still with you. I know you're with me. Everybody should respect our anthem and that this was just another reminder to his base. And if you do look and strictly ask, where does the public stand, pun intended, I guess, here, and should you stand for the national anthem? The public still believes that the players should stand. Oh, I think uh, Donald Trump was very clearly making a play to his base with the kind of uh, issue that that works has worked so well for him. It's about symbols. It's uh, not about deep policy or, or no. a deep uh, strategy. Simple, simple uh, emotional appeal. Yeah. But also one that has galvanized some emotion on the the, the other side, as people who identify uh, the the freedom of speech as a very fundamental piece of what America stands for. They see uh, Trump's position as somehow interfering with people's right to free expression. Yep. And and also it, it, underlying all that, of course, the issue that caused Colin Kaepernick to act the way he did in the first place right. uh, almost a year ago now, and that is the, the concern about race relations in this country and about policing in this country. Yep. So uh, that that it, 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 he has just once again galvanized the issue. To me, the interesting thing was how n- unnecessary it was for him to bring this up again at this moment. This was Well, there's nothing going on, right? <laughs> I mean, John, there's... <laughs> I mean, it's not well, like North Korea, health care. Indeed, it obscured that. Puerto Rico, of course. Puerto Rico, yes. so many other issues that are, in the case of Puerto Rico, literally life and death. And, you know, he slipped in a few tweets in between that were read so provocatively by North Korea that they interpreted it, at least from their public statement, as an act of war yeah. against two nuclear-armed nations at this point. And, you know, when you talk about his base, he clearly did 
probably shore that up. But when you look at public opinion polls, his base may be a third to 37% of the country. Right. And when you become president of the United States, it's traditional for Republicans and Democrats to look at the entire nation as one's base and to think, what can I do and where can I find opportunities in a very tough town like Washington, D.C. to try to unify the nation? And I think that one of the many hallmarks of President Trump and his administration nine months or so in here is he rarely, if ever, yeah. takes a moment to try to unify the nation. And if anything, he seems to repeatedly and delightfully provoke the other side and as provoke if, these types of controversies. It's almost as if, John, the campaign for him has not ended. Well, right? That he, he, he was such a, from the point he was a kid to the success in New York, it was meet that challenge head on and either you're with me or you're wrong. And he hasn't changed as president. Well, the campaign, of course, is distinctly different from governing. It's easier to campaign than to actually try to solve all the problems that you right. rail against when, when you run for president here. And to the degree that he still brings up Secretary Clinton and you know what he perceives as her misdeeds suggests that his mind is often still on the campaign as well. And it's also terra firma for him. It's something that he knows very well, can return to, can speak with authoritative fluency. Whereas these problems that are coming at him that defy easy solution for Republicans present and 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 prior, you know, it's much more difficult to try to bring people together and come to sensible solutions on that. And, and that clearly are things that he's not overly leaning toward now. Two last points. We'll let uh, both of you go. John touched on it. We can't let this slide. What's going on with Puerto Rico? Laura? Oh. And and. You know, the president, when he's meeting yesterday in the Rose Garden with the Spanish prime minister, was talking about all the rave reviews he has received. And then you see the governor of Puerto Rico. You see that only 5% of the country has power back. It's about a third of the hospitals have power. These are U.S. citizens who are in danger of a humanitarian crisis right now. Oh, yeah. I saw on social media this morning questions being asked, is Puerto Rico Donald Trump's Katrina? Yeah. Well, not yet, but if things don't get better in the next few days, uh, yes, that there will be those kinds of charges leveled because, as you say, these are American citizens who have been devastated by back-to-back, within the span of two weeks, Category 4, Category 5 hurricanes. I don't know that that's happened in our lifetimes anywhere else before, certainly not on American soil, which this is. Yeah. And, and to the extent right. Donald Trump makes comments about how this is an island in a big ocean, it denies the connection that Puerto Rico has yeah. had for 100 years and more to the United States. John, let's finish. I know you wrote about it on Sunday. About uh, It's the fourth time, I believe, Angela Merkel has won. She is once again the leader of Germany. What does this mean here for those of us here in the States? That we and the rest of the Western world depend on Angela Merkel to try to pull it together. And increasingly, she's going to be looked at on the international stage. And she has, I think, gracefully, and we should be grateful, the fact that she's offered to try to take part in the North Korean talks and to try to find a diplomatic and non-military solution to that. All of that is going to be considerably more challenging because however uh, politically skilled she is, that's going to be have to be focused on domestic matters and cobbling a coalition together of the Green Party and the pro-business Free Democrats to have a governing majority in Germany, and meanwhile fending off yet another rise of the right on continental uh, Europe, which has particularly ominous overtones given 
Germany's extremely sordid 20th century past here and some of the parties or some of the uh, players who are prominent in Alternative for Germany, which is this only four-year-old right-wing, far-right-wing party here, you know, have said things about honoring the contributions of soldiers, you know, during the Germany's world wars and, and things that are offensive to people here and maybe even more offensive to the vast majority of Germans who have been incredibly consistent ab- about teaching their young people and continually reminding the world and atoning for the sins of the Holocaust yeah. and, and those dark chapters in, in our world history here. So uh, European politics just got more difficult. Um, domestic politics for her got more difficult. And the world awaits her to be able to sort this out and then hopefully be able to sort out some of the crises challenging the globe. We'll temporarily conclude right there. Lori and John from the Star Tribune editorial board, thank you so much. Check out their fine work, startribune.com. Chad Hartman here. Please listen to me, WCC Radio, Monday through Friday, noon to 3. And check out Playing Politics, Playing Politics either on the Star Tribune website or here, WCCO Radio.